We are very privileged to have with us today on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show a German sociologist and prolific author, an acquaintance of Pope Benedict XVI who has visited him in his post-retirement monastery and still exchanges Christmas cards and Easter cards with him. She is the foremost European culture warrior protecting the family from the sexual revolution. Pope Benedict XVI has called her, and I quote, a brave fighter against the ideologies that ultimately result in the destruction of man. Stay tuned for this episode of The John Henry Weston Show. Welcome, Gabriela Kubi, to the John Henry Weston Show. Welcome, John Henry. Nice to speak Let, to you. Let's begin, as we always do, with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, we have a mutual friend in Michael O'Brien, with whom you have offered, uh, authored this latest book, The Abuse of Sexuality in the Catholic Church, uh, which we'll be, we'll be speaking about. And I've been blessed to know you now through Michael for about 15 years. Uh, a chapter in this book is the essay of Pope Benedict XVI on this subject. And the introduction of this book comes from Cardinal Gerhard Müller, the um, chosen head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, uh, chosen by Pope Benedict XVI, and only recently removed from that position uh, by Pope Francis. Now, writing about the sexual abuse crisis in the Church is a very difficult topic, but you seem to have spent your life after your conversion writing about hard topics. Um, you uh, authored and, in fact, LifeSite interviewed you uh, on the John Jonathan Van Maren show about your book on the gender revolution. And uh, this book of yours, probably your most well-known book, it's called The Global Sexual Revolution, Destruction of Freedom in the Name of Freedom. And I would encourage all of our viewers if you haven't heard it yet, listen to the Jonathan Van Maren show interview with Gabriela Kubi on that fascinating book. For this interview, I want our viewers to understand, first of all, uh, the depth of your own faith. Um, I, I read your book, as I have many of your books, and I was very impressed with your writing, uh, which at times actually seemed poetic. Um, there's this one passage in your book. Again, the book is The Abuse of Sexuality in the Catholic Church. Um, and this portion of the book was, for me, uh, a great testimony and description of your faith, if you will. And you wrote this, As a convert to the Catholic faith, late in life, I was overwhelmed to discover the bountiful graciousness of the church. It was like a banquet where you could never even taste all the foods offered for free. And one of my first experiences was the mysterious power of the exposed Blessed Sacrament. I couldn't bear to be close, and I had to move to the back of the church. I tried again to come close, and I had to move away. And this was my experience of Peter saying to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's where you come from, a place of vibrant and humble faith. Um, I, I, was, I was really moved by that. I, um, I feel it's a real testimony of, of uh, what I've seen in your faith life. So, to start, 
Um, you say in your book that uh, you give an impressive sort of overview of the situation uh, in, in the church with this horrific sexual abuse crisis. And I'll read it. You say, for non-believers, this is a welcome opportunity to bring down the church. For the baptized heathens, you say, it is a reason to leave the church. But for believers and friends of Jesus, it is a cause of suffering within the church, the mystical body of Christ. What do you what do you what do you say to that? I mean, this is, uh, for me, honestly, poetic, beautiful language uh, to describe this most serious of uh, of uh, you know calamities for the church right now. Sexual abuse through priests is just unbelievably awful. Sexual abuse by anybody of an adult with a child devastates the soul of the young person. But sexual abuse through a priest not only devastates the psyche or the soul of the person, but probably the faith. It is very, very hard for a person if you put your trust in a priest and then you are sexually abused. I know of cases uh, personally uh, of people who just have abandoned the church altogether, abandoned their faith in Christ. So that this is happening in such a vast amount in the church is just, I'm missing the words. It is absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. of course, this is, I mean, the, the church couldn't be stabbed more into its heart than by this crisis. And uh, people who always turned against the church, uh, they used to say, uh, had to go back in history quite a long time, point at the Crusades, point at the witch burning, uh, to say how terrible the church is, the Catholic church. Now they don't have to go back that far. They just have to say here, abuse, 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 abuse. Of course, there's a dilemma uh, with this issue because the world is pressing the church, uh, well, probably always, but has been pressing the church ever since the Second Vatican Council to, to reformulate the sexual moral theology. And uh, so on the one hand, they want the church to liberalize its teaching. On the other hand, they have to point to the church and say, here is uh, sexual laissez-faire. Of course, abuse is simply a terrible sin, but uh, priests having affairs with the same-sex people and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would we react to this? And as, as you just uh, read that, Uh, If you are an enemy of the church, have always been, uh, of course, you use that against the church and you will not look to the horrific amount of sexual abuse in ordinary society, which Mm -hmm. is much, much bigger in percentage than it is in the church. That is not even an issue. But it's the church, the church, the church, the church. And uh, the other, the, the, other possibility, um, well, the, the possibility for a believer is to stay in the church and suffer with the church. And that is the case 
for anybody who loves the church and you read out what I said about my conversion. Yes, I love the church and I mm -hmm. still love the church. And it has always been a church of sinners and it is still a church of sinners. Absolutely. One uh, one of the most striking things uh, in your book, particularly because, you know, you, you have this book with uh, a chapter of Pope Benedict Emeritus uh, in it. You have uh, a chapter or the foreword of the book by uh, Cardinal Müller. Uh, you have uh, another uh contribution in the book by uh, eminent uh, author in, in Canada, Michael O'Brien. Um, and one of the striking things is that you address very frankly the cause behind the crisis as a, a homosexuality rather than what's been popularly you know, bandied about clericalism. Uh, to see clericalism, you say, the uh, improper exercise of ecclesial power as the cause of the sexual abuse by priests means veiling its deep-seated roots, you wrote. Um, and you wrote further that the only abuse uh, is the problem uh, for most bishops and the media is not homosexuality practiced by so many priests and bishops um, and even up to the highest levels of the hierarchy. What led you actually to recognize homosexuality uh, at the heart of this crisis? It is very simple. Uh, there are three major reports uh, about homosexuality in the church, about abuse, sexual abuse in the church. One is the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, which came out in 2018. Mm -hmm. Then is the report of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in 2004. And there's a report of the Los Angeles Times of 2002. Mm -hmm. And Professor Sullins, an, an emeritus of sociology, a Catholic priest, analyzed these studies and other uh, reports around the world. And the fact is that nearly 80% of sexual abuse is men to young men, priests to, uh, to young boys, preferably in the, in the age of puberty or just after. This pure, beautiful body of a young lad seems to be the most attractive. And if it's 80%, so what is going on? It's homosexual abuse. So we should deal with the issue of homosexuality in the church. And the same report by Father Sullins states that the percentage of homosexuals among the priesthood is eight times higher than in the average of society. Mm. So it is obvious we have a problem and a very, very sad fact is and ununderstandable that at the big synod, which was called by Pope Francis to Rome, I think it was in February, calling the heads of all bishop conferences of the world to Rome to deal with the abuse crisis, mm -hmm. uh, the word homosexuality wasn't mentioned. It is like a big, big elephant in the room, and nobody wants to take notice of the elephant. And that shows there's some, something very deeply wrong within the church. Absolutely. Um, you, you even mentioned in your book that uh, homosexuality actually in the clergy is not all that new. It's been addressed by other popes. Yes. Uh, well, uh, 
there are there are reports and books uh, were out who who, uh, who pointed uh, to the network and lobby groups of homosexuality within the church already in uh, very early in 1982 a priest called Enrique Rueda I'm quoting him in uh, in our book uh, described the homosexual it's, the book is called the homosexual network private lives and public policy it was published in 1982 and already then there were huge networks of uh, homosexual priests bishops cardinals uh, grabbing or, or holding getting into power positions within the church and here you may be able to speak about clericalism because clericalism to my mind means abuse of power of clerical of power within the church and the the homosexual network within the church is using their power positions of getting more and more and more influence influence on naming which bishops will be nominated uh, who will be the spiritual and the rector of a priest seminar who what will be the uh, the criteria for accepting priests or into young men into the priest seminary. There's also a book which I already quoted in my Global Sexual uh, Revolution, a very disturbing book, Good by Good Man, by a man called Michael S. Rose. Subtitle, How Liberals Brought Corruption into the Catholic Church, uh, published in 2002. So it was, it's actually all in the open, but the church did not deal with it or try to deal. Pope Benedict published a, a document uh, about uh, homosexuals not uh, being accepted into the priest seminar if they have deep-rooted homosexual tendencies. Mm -hmm. But somehow uh, the the lobby was so is was and is so strong that uh, it still holds the power. And it is very, very difficult to clear and clean the church of this problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you 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 had the uh, as you mentioned in your book the uh, forbidding of even uh, people with established homosexual orientation from entering into seminary. Uh, and that seems all to be done away with, all to be being ignored. A couple of weeks ago, actually, I spoke with Professor Janet Smith on this show, um, who taught at a U.S. seminary, and she told me about rampant homosexuality in some dioceses in the United States. In fact, she just sort of took an early retirement uh, from her teaching position to study this question of sexual abuse in the church because it's such a crisis. And you said in your book, uh, and I quote again, now it can no longer be denied that many bishops in the U.S. and many other nations covered up or even promoted homosexual subculture in seminaries, and that at least 15 U.S. bishops, among them Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, are themselves accused of sexual abuse of minors and dependents. But you add... No doubt it is a minority of priests and bishops who are actively entangled in the LGBT network, but it looks as if the majority looked away, concealed, or sympathized. Would you speak to that? Yes. You know, I'm getting the impression 
that there was an atmosphere in the church, maybe over centuries, that homosexual abusing boys for homosexual satisfaction isn't really a big problem. Let them do it in private. We will not deal with it. It seems like this is a very old heritage. My knowledge of church history is not big enough, but I read uh, statements like, uh, if you know you can get you can all as a homosexual you might not be able to marry you won't don't want to marry so make a career in the church and mm -hmm. even in our time I've spoken to older priests they do they do not have a true um, awareness of the severe and deep and lifelong damage that this does to young people young men if they are abused in that way. It seems there is really a lack of awareness. And this is a kind of clericalism uh, which has to go. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and you know, we, now we are in the age of psychology and we have to acknowledge the depth of the destruction of the soul of a person if that happens. Yeah. What the church is doing, uh, I don't get the sense that there is you know, an erschrecken in German, a, a, a real shock mm -hmm. in our, what is going on in our church. We must change that yeah. because the lobby is so powerful. Uh, there is not, I don't get a sense we really have to purify, we really have to clean this church. We have to come back to the teaching of Jesus Christ and the Bible, the beautiful, beautiful teaching uh, of uh, of the Christian teaching on sexuality, marriage, and family, mm -hmm. and uh, and make that shine, yeah. Give, inspire people with it, because yeah. we have something to inspire people. The world only thinks, oh, they're taking away everything which which is lustful, you know, and which is enjoyable. No, yeah. no, we have this desire for love. This deep, deep longing for love, everybody, every person has it. Every straight or homosexual person has this deep longing for love in the heart. Mm -hmm. And the mother church, the, 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 the calling of our mother church is to show people the way how that deep longing can be fulfilled. And it is not fulfilled by any kind of promiscuity, any kind of satisfaction of your body, because we are one, we are soul and body always together, and only if soul and body are, uh, I, you know, in, in, in the sexual act, if soul and body are equally engaged, and it is an act of mutual giving in love, only then will that desire uh, be fulfilled, that longing for deep love be fulfilled. And this is what the church should teach. Mm -hmm. But it has given up to teach it ever since the rebellion against the Encyclica Humanae Vitae. Yeah. Yeah. You were, you were, uh, you are from Germany. Um, you wrote in your book about uh, what's going on in Germany. You talked about how others are using the, uh, this time in the church, this historic hour, as you say, to attempt the final abolition of ce the celibacy rule and turn the church's sexual morality on its head. Um, you write about 
German bishops um, who are not bishops, excuse me. It was the um, the uh, German bishops website, or at least a website funded largely by them, which basically talked about the only way to solve this crisis is to welcome homosexual priests and to acknowledge them as equals. Um, and as I understand it from your book, it was the, the German Bishops Conference gives this website, which features this article, two million or no, two million uh, uh, euros a year. Yes. That's yes. unbelievable. Well, we have come to a place to in, in, his, in history where now the attack on the teaching of the church can be driven openly unashamed. You can just come out and say, I want to have homosexual couples blessed. I want, we want a, a, a rector of a seminary. We will accept a priest with homosexual um, orientation into our seminary, uh, which is backed by the bishop. Uh, today in LifeSide News, I learned uh, of a book uh, which has just come out by a a German, uh, German um, priest, his name is Bernd Mönkebüscher, and his book is called To Be Unashamedly Catholic. And he just says, I'm a homosexual. Uh, he probably, I haven't seen the book, I just read that uh, in, uh, on LifeSide News today. Uh, whether he actually admits that he's practicing it or whether he just says I have that orientation, I don't know. I probably, it's probably left to the imagination of the reader. And he calls on Bishop Overbeck of Essen, uh, who said, yes, we have to change our attitude to homosexuality. And so he's now unashamed, he can just put it out uh, and say, here I am, I want the church to change. And of course, he's not the only one. If that happens on the official website of the Catholic Church in Germany, and we all know Cardinal Marx uh, is the head of the Bishops' Conference, so I suppose he has a word to say what happens on that website. If that happens there, and uh, why shouldn't any priest come out and say, I'm gay, and that is good, and that is fine? So this is what is happening, and it doesn't have to be covered up anymore. It's just out in the open now. And okay. it's, <laughs> you know, people do not, since there hasn't been any catechesis of sexual morality, family and marriage, mm -hmm. since Humane Vita, basically. You know, I'm in the church since 1997. Uh, Humane Vita was 68. But I've been to thousands of holy masses. I go to mass several times a week, of course, every Sunday. I have not heard a single homily about sexual morality in the church. More than that, priests who do it are rebuked by their bishop. Yeah. I, I, I know facts, facts like this. So people do not know anymore uh, what, uh, what the church has to give how the church can inspire, uh, as I already said, a person to search for the fulfillment of the longing for love in a way, on a path, that can actually be fulfilled. Yeah. 
If I might ask, I mean, Germany seems to be, at least right now anyway, uh, the, the sort of leading country in the world where the church is suffering the most, the church is most betraying Christ. In, in I'm mean, so sad to say that. Uh, I mean, but you it, know, there isn't a big difference to the Netherlands or to Belgium or uh, or to the UK. I'm not so sure, right. but but the the it's sort of most outspoken, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right now. So, but but. What happens to bring Germany, but but also, you know, these other countries, the Netherlands and so on? Do you have any clue what might have happened to bring the church to such a state? One could go back in history a few uh, centuries, of course. Luther came from Germany. Protestanten, Luther protests against Rome. And uh, this has shaped German idealistic philosophy. Friedrich Hegel, who had immense influence on philosophy, uh, was influenced by Martin Luther. So this is a tradition of 500 years now, mm. and it has built up the so-called anti-Römische effect. There's a mm. constant in, in, in Germany or in, in, in the German church, a deep-rooted sentiment, affect um, a feeling against the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, um, I, my first pope was John Paul II when I entered the church. How wonderful that was to be able to look up to that shining light mm-hmm. uh, of John Paul II. And he was opposed like crazy from the German bishops uh, for, for all this debate about the uh, abortion and would the church do uh, advise people and then give them a, a slip of paper which allows them to abort and so on. That was the a big yeah. fight with John Paul II between the German church and John Paul II. And mm. at some point, John Paul II said, you must do it that way. Mm. And they found other ways to, to give that uh, document to women yeah. who want to abort. Then yeah. Benedict. Benedict. Yeah. A German, you know, this great great intellectual life. By the way, he comes, uh, his family at home is just 20 minutes from where I'm just sitting here now from, from where I live, He's a true Bavarian, and comes from a very simple Bavarian family. And there's this incredible intellectual and faithful light. We could have rejoiced. Germany, with this guilt of the Holocaust, could have sort of grown and become upright again because obviously God has forgiven if he calls uh, for a German to be the Pope and the representative of Christ on this earth. Mm-hmm. There's no, nowhere more feindseligkeit, uh, enmity, uh, what's the word, uh, animosity? Is that, is that mm-hmm. the word? Yeah. Uh, against Pope Benedict than from his own country. Yeah. Yeah. And he did what he could. In 2010, he addressed the abuse crisis. I heard that when he was uh, the, the prefect of the Congregation of Faith, he spent every single Friday dealing with the filth and dirt and the abysmal sins of sexual abuse. He was the one who tried to fight against it. But uh, the powers in place are stronger and still to the present day. Amazing. So, you uh, in your book, you actually said that um, about the words of Pope Francis, who am I to judge? You said they may go down in history 
as the fanfare for relativization of Christian sexual morality. What do, what do you mean there? Yes. I remember very well when I read that in the paper, who am I to judge? Who else on this planet is there who should judge about sexual morality? who should speak clearly, who should inspire the world. Uh, but he backed back. Uh, he was asked by the journalist, in fact, um, how would he deal with the LGBT lobby and so on. And his only answer was, who am I to judge? Mm -hmm. this is, that's where we are. Uh, we do not have clear direction. Uh, we now, the, on, a, on a much larger scale in Germany, we have now, the, the bishops have agreed to start a so-called synodala process, a, synod, a process of the synod, getting all the bishops and the liberal lay organization, Central Committee der Deutschen Katholiken, they have a major player in this, and they always go against Roman and, and, and the traditional teaching of the church. So they come together and the intent is, the proclaimed intent is to speak about sexual morality, uh, namely homosexuality, uh, the ordination of women and celibacy. And this, these same issues will be dealt with at the Amazonas Synode coming up in October in Rome. Uh, we have probably all read uh, about the very, very doubtful and critical uh, Instrumentum Laboris, the paper which prepares the Synod, they will have the same issues there, but they will have something even great, well, even a, a, next, a next limit which is crossed, a next barrier which is crossed, that is uh, paganism, opening the doors for paganism, outright paganism into the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all, all in the guise of, of sort of honoring uh, indigenous uh, religion and so on, and yet uh, somehow completely ignoring the fact that we have to bring them to Christ to, uh, as, as we reported on LifeSite the other day, that Benedict, when he addressed these issues of indigenous religions, he talked about, no, how they have to be brought to Christ. And then when they embrace Christ, they can bring all their beautiful other traditions into things. But it's that embrace of Christ that gives them their real and true identity. Exactly. I've spoken to African priests. Uh, there are some African priests now in, in taking positions in, in our German parishes. Mm -hmm. And they didn't talk about uh, imperialism of the West. They said, you brought us the faith. We are thankful that the West brought us the faith. And now we can give something back. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. So yeah. everybody, you, you started at the beginning uh, quoting me that the, for me, the church was like a big banquet where I couldn't even, mm. even taste all the foods. So anybody who has discovered the wealth and richness of the Catholic uh, tradition uh, will be thankful for that and mm. will turn away from uh, esotericism and all these a thousand other methods which try to 
which are substitutes for a true living relationship to our living God, Jesus Christ, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that the church is now actually uh, opening the door back to paganism. Uh, what are we to say as Catholics? What are we to say? I can only console myself by saying there is a plan of God. Mm -hmm. God became man. God went to the cross. Jesus resurrected from the cross. He rose back into heaven. This whole 2,000 years of history, of Christian history, changing the face of this earth and changing millions and millions and millions of hearts. Mm -hmm. God is not abandoning, abandoning the human being. And mm -hmm. we have all the, I mean, we have it all in the Bible. We have um, uh, St. Paul who says, uh, first we have to have the great apostasy before the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. We have Jesus Christ in very, very clear terms telling us what is ahead of us before his second coming. You know, it will be tough. It will be really tough. That is, by the way, uh, the, the theme also of a book of Michael O'Brien, Apocalypse, Apocalypse. Mm -hmm which I translated and had a great joy and thought it was so important that I translated it into German. It has That's come out recently in English uh, in, 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 in Canada. Absolutely. And we featured Michael on our show as well. I mean, we, we, we are told in the Bible, it will be tough at the end, but there will be the new Jerusalem. So we Christians are called upon whatever happens, to grow in our faith to a degree that we can be a light of hope to our brothers and sisters. I think this is what we are called to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, in the Catechism, uh, they describe this sort of as the mystical body of Christ, the Church, going through a similar passion uh, that Christ himself did. And I, I think the, the position of us in the church, loving the church, um, is, uh, is one of Our Lady who had to watch uh, our Lord be crucified, had to accept that as the will of God, uh, offer that up. And we're, we're, I mean, called to still witness to the truth. So, despite the fact that the apostles, uh, even in the face of Jesus' death, um, still had to give witness to the truth, even though that cost them. It cost them all their lives. Uh, except John, of course, they tried to kill him, but it didn't work. Um, since we're, since all, they were so, so disappointed that they didn't, didn't even recognize Jesus when he was walking next to them, you know, because they thought everything was lost. Yeah, exactly. Um, since since we're talking about uh, the, the Pope, and, and uh, I wanted to ask you too, since you're an academic, um, there's been a, a new thing that happened in Rome uh, <clears throat> just recently, 
Uh, you had the John Paul II Institute this, for the Marriage and Family, this beautiful institute founded by uh, John Paul II and, and uh, given in charge of to Cardinal Carlo Cafara, who was a, a great friend of his, and, and um, we were close to him as well, who, who uh, has since passed away. But um, this basically, the institute has been uh, dismantled. It was uh, given over uh, in charge to, uh, first of all, the Pope uh, did a motu proprio, a, a personal communication changing the focus of the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and the Family to then concentrate rather on that, but on to uh, Amoris Laetitia. He gave it to the charge of the very controversial uh, Archbishop Paglia, who, who uh, ran for first the Academy for Life, then the Pontifical, excuse me, first the Pontifical Council for the Family, then the Academy for Life. Um, a very controversial character for very many reasons. But then um, he basically suspended all the professors, um, keep, retains now a few, and dismisses the most important professors that were in connection with uh, John Paul II. Just wanted to get your reaction uh, to that whole scenario since you yourself are an academic. Yes, thank you for describing it in detail. Uh, it is absolutely shocking. Uh, the church hasn't proclaimed its beautiful teaching uh, and of, of uh, sexuality, marriage and family and has not really made use of the incredible richness of the heritage of John Paul II. Mm -hmm. The theology of the body and all the encyclicas and so on, such, such wealth and richness. And there we have this institute. I think it was founded right away after, no, it was actually John Paul II wanted to proclaim the founding on the very, very day, 13th of May, when he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. uh, I think right. it was the very day. So we see, oh, wow, there's something big going on. So mm -hmm. the Institute was founded. Exceptional professors uh, were leading it. Nori, Professor Noriega and Professor Livio Melina, they mm -hmm. were the, the, the backbones of the Institute and, and other professors who were expert on the teaching of John Paul II. The, the mm -hmm. Institute was called John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family. Mm -hmm. It was renamed and uh, the, the dismantling already began, as you mentioned. But now, just the decapitation is happening. <laughs> just with one stroke of the sword, the main people are just dismissed from one day to the other. Mm -hmm. uh, even on a legal uh, level, uh, not to speak of a level of compassion, which we hear so often, uh, this would be impossible in a secular university setting yeah. to just dismiss people from one, one day to the other, to leave the students who have put their trust in the institution and the professors who want to do their exams there, just leave them dangling in the air. Yeah. Uh, and you know that, that it goes on and on. We have this drawing back, drawing back from the teaching of the church for a few decades. And now the think tank, the core institution that has educated hundreds of professors who, who are able to bring the teaching into the world and to just decapitate it and put people in charge who do not share uh, the, the wonderful inspiration and love of John Paul II is 
again, I'm missing the words. Very, very, very sad. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of protest. I immediately wrote a letter myself to to the leading people, uh, being aware that uh, that uh, there's very little chance that it will have an influence. Uh, but I still, we do our work anyway. We have to mm-hmm. speak out for the truth. Uh, wherever we can, you do it on a very large scale with LifeSide News, I do it on my scale. Uh, and we do not look uh, whether, uh, we, it's not a, a criteria for our activity, whether we were successful or not. Mm-hmm. We, we have the, uh, we speak with uh, David fighting Goliath, the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, actually, in terms of reaction, you, you, you do talk about that in your book. Um, you, you talk about um, anger as a reaction uh, to, to the sexual abuse crisis, but I think also in terms of this current crisis in the, in the church, in the hierarchy of the church, um, there is a, a lot of anger. Can you explain what you meant by anger? Well, the first reaction if something disagreeable happens to us is anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we feel angry, we have high energy, high adrenaline, and we feel strong. Mm-hmm. If you go into a process of looking beneath that anger, any kind of anger, whether about the happenings in the church or anywhere else, uh, you really find sadness and suffering. Mm-hmm. And when you are in a state of sadness and suffering, you don't feel strong at all. So we prefer to be angry and start petitions and, 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 and. Uh, but I think it's important to deep dig down to that true feeling of great sadness that our mother church is not, sort of, you know, is, is so devastated at the moment uh, and that is a really great suffering. And I suppose who suffers most is Jesus Christ and his mother Mary. Uh, what that suffering can mean in eternal glory, I don't know. But there are some spiritual teachers who say, comfort Jesus in his suffering. And there must be some kind of suffering that we go off uh, the off this the narrow path to eternity to that degree in our present time. Any one of us, we are not forced to do that. Uh, and if we remain faithful and true to the truth and to the teaching, we will have to pay, but we can walk the path. And we have lots and lots of food to walk that path, uh, especially also through the digital digital media. So we can, if we don't have the priest in the parish who gives us nourishment, which very often is not the case, or uh, then we can actually find sources of, of nourishment for our path and our soul uh, through the media. And you're doing a great job. I do want to say that John Henry, you're really doing an incredible job with life sadness. Thank you for all that work. Praise God. 
You have in your book, uh, I, I consider a really beautiful passage. You you talk about a solution to the crisis. And I'm, I'm just going to read it out here because I think it was just so beautiful. As I said at the top of the show, uh, I find a lot of your prose very poetic. You say, just imagine the bishops and cardinals ensnared in the abuse crisis, initiating a penitential movement and leading the faithful in prayer and fasting. Just imagine bishops who would use their power to clean the church with the full knowledge that this would put them on the way of the cross. In Nineveh, everyone from the king to the cattle repented and God spared the city. What a testimony that would be to the world. This is the only way for the church to regain its moral authority. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Yes. Beautiful. But you, you added there that you, you, you seem to doubt that this will come about. You, you suggested that more probably than a conversion and repentance, the church would be cleansed through persecution. Can you explain that a little? I haven't seen any bishop in, in a position, in a high position or, or a cardinal, who has actually come out and said to the world, I am sorry for what I did. It would be such an incredible relief if that happened. Because anybody who walks the path with Jesus Christ all the time comes to, recognizes his own sins and will say to God and to the priest in confession, I'm really sorry for what I did. And if you do that, you have an incredible relief and you can, you know, you have a compassionate God and you can continue the path. You can stand up again in the face, in the light of God and continue to walk until the next fall. And so we go through our life. So this is, would be such an incredible gift to the world if a bishop, actually a high person in the church, church would actually do that mm-hmm. and possibly he would uh, whatever the reaction may be but I'm waiting for that to happen mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm saying uh, it is more likely that the church will be cleansed by persecution we are moving into that it is increasingly um, costly in many respects, to stand publicly to the Christian faith, especially in sexual morality. Uh, we will be cast out in our personal environment, in our professional environment. We will be covered with lawsuits up to the, to the Supreme Courts. Uh, and the lobby is really after anybody who speaks out to actually ruin their existence. Many cases, we, we know of many cases like that. Uh, so we know it's it's tough if we do that. And the higher you are, the more influential your position is, the more they will get after you. Uh, mm-hmm. So we are in this process. I'm describing it in my book, The Global Sexual Revolution. That's why I chose this subtitle, Destruction of Freedom, the Name of Freedom. We are in this process. And I have no doubt uh, that... There is a new kind of totalitarianism on its way. Uh, we are already experiencing uh, experiencing it. Uh, many of the prophets in uh, inverted commas of our time point to that. This is where we are heading to. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, let us cling to Jesus Christ and to his mother, consecrate ourselves to his mother Mary and ask for the grace to be strong enough when these processes increase. After all, uh, uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said in Fatima, my immaculate heart will triumph. And we can have little experiences of resurrection and, and triumph in our daily lives today. <clears throat> Amen. I, I wanted to even conclude with this little passage from your book, which I found so very moving. Um, and all, in all honesty, I, I think it's very true that it is uh, a solution for sure for priests and those who find themselves in hardship with all of the sexual temptations that's out there. Um, just, I, I'll read it out. I was so impressed by this. It, it applies not only to priests, it applies to all of us today, because we're all being dragged down in this sexual revolution. Um, and it is so harmful for everybody. And you wrote, with regards to Our Lady, as you were just saying, Every celibate priest who reveres the Mother of God and allows her to work in his life is turned toward the feminine and the maternal, the pure and beautiful, and can drink from this well. From her he will gain the strength to live in chastity and celibacy. An eternal reward is due to all those who dare to stand up against the powerful pressure of the times and to risk being shunned and defamed and deprived of their honor and material existence. They are the wells of clear water from which men can quench their thirst for truth. God will reward them in eternity. That's from Gabriela Kubi's book, the sexual, revol uh, the ab sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Gabriela, what a great honor it was for me to be with you on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. Thank you very much, John Henry. It is a great honor for me that we had this talk. Thank you very much indeed. May God bless you and God bless you all. Until the next John Henry Weston Show, we'll see you then. <laughs>